Welcome to Centering, the Asian American Christian podcast. This season, we're discussing the ways critical race theory interacts with Asian American Christianity. Join us each week for a conversation about race and grace. I'm Daniel Lee. And I'm Alex Jun. We are your hosts. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to another episode of Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Lee, the Academic Dean of Fuller Seminary's Center for Asian American Theology and Ministry. Our topic this season is race and grace, critical race theory and Asian American Christianity. This season is made up of a series of conversations that I'm having with my friend, Dr. Alex John, professor of higher education at Azusa Pacific University. Hello, Daniel. Good to see you again. All right. Well, this episode is focusing on intersectionality and Imago Dei. Oh, boy. Let's start by talking about what is intersectionality. Yes. Lots of discussion about what intersectionality is and where it came from. And I have to go to Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a legal scholar, educator, who came up with this concept a few decades ago. And her understanding and her application originally has morphed and evolved into different versions of intersectionality. But in its core, uh, Dr. Crenshaw had made the argument that the experiences of Black women will be different from the experiences of white women. Because while white women will suffer from being sexualized and dealing with misogyny, their whiteness protects them in many ways and makes them blind to some of the issues that are also makes black women racialized. So the idea for black women experiencing both racism and sexism and those intersectional identities is what makes their experiences that much more oppressive. Right. I mean, she talks about different roads, right? If you live at the intersection, it's almost as though you're in danger of getting run over by different cars coming from different angles, right? And, and, you know, she has this course in Women's Studies. There's this quote, there's this idea of the fact that all women are white and all Blacks are men. The fact that when you think about a marginalized group, the most privileged out of that group ends up taking taking kind of a hold of the whole narrative and representing the whole group. I mean, that happens, I think, just for I mean, Asian, Asian Americans as well, right? Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. We find ourselves in these interesting social spaces in terms of our identity. Uh, what does it mean to be light-skinned for East Asian Americans, by and large? Uh, but then our own maleness, uh, some of our heteronormative practices, if we're cisgender in orientation, right? These are things that we, these are uh, salient identities for some of us, or they are just non-existent for others. And so this is going to be a very important conversation to have in the midst of the Imago Dei, knowing that we were made in God's image. So we're going to try to tie those two together. Okay, okay, let's stop here. Let's think about this, okay? As Christians, shouldn't our identity be in Christ alone? Why are we even hanging on to these other identities about race or ethnicity or gender or sexuality or orientation or whatever? I mean, that's the common question that comes up on a regular basis, right? 
Like it's almost as though if we hang on to any of these things or even even associate ourselves or de- describe ourselves in these ways, it's almost as though uh, we are, you know, having multiple gods. You know, we're having we're being unfaithful to Christ. It's interesting when we say you are now a new creation, right? Um, and the application for many of us when we apply it to race, what are we saying? right? That you no longer see color, right? Which I think we've talked about before that that's just bad theology because uh, God made us in our different shapes and sizes, right? God is a God of diversity. Man did not create this. And so I think it's important for us to make that distinction um, that diversity is not a human concept, um, but it is a God ordained concept that was passed down through creation. Um, Different ethnicities and races did not evolve from white people, right? And so that's an important distinction. But when we talk about Imago Dei versus these salient identities, and I'm going to be unnecessarily um, uh, problematic for a second here, but <laughs> okay, your, right. your listeners are probably used to this. Okay, I'm when ready. I'm ready. Go say, ahead. Yeah. When we say that we're a new creation and the old has died and the new were union with Christ, I used to love bananas before I became a Christian. And after I became a Christian, maybe bananas were not the right fruit for me to eat. What do Christians eat? What fruit should Christians eat? Right. If I liked being bananas before, becoming a Christian. I became a Christian in college. Can I not like bananas afterward? Or a little, a little closer to home, perhaps for the Presbyterian listening. You know, I used to drink alcohol before. And now that I'm a new creation, I shouldn't drink alcohol anymore. You know, uh, uh, that may be up for debate, you know, uh, of where we are in terms of license. I know the listener will probably say, no, we're talking about sin. We shouldn't sin anymore or go back to our sinful ways. Okay. Is my identity as a Korean American man somehow in jeopardy after I become a Christian? Should I no longer identify as a Korean American man? You know, isn't it, isn't it interesting in that same point, right? Because in Corinthians, uh, people thought, uh, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and saying, wait a minute, you are thinking the fact that you're like angels. Sexual ethics don't matter anymore because you're like angels. And Paul's like, wait a minute. No, you are not like angels. Your bodies matter, right? Your body is a temple of God. Your particular bodies, right? Your sexualized bodies are a temple of God. And, you know, one of the things that you and I have joked around about the fact that uh, I think many of us kind of grew up thinking the fact that the resurrection body, because, you know, obviously we're Christians and we believe in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrected Christ. We talked, joked around about this, the fact that we believe that our resurrected bodies will be white because that's what perfection meant when we were growing up. I kept joking around about the fact that maybe if I resurrect, I will resurrect with Brad Pitt's body. Like, you know, especially when he was younger, like he was a perfect body in a sense. That's funny. And now I say, when I resurrect, I want to come back like my friend. I want to be Chaim Pyo. You know, I want to be a famous Korean actor. Anyway, (laughs) um, it's interesting, too, when you think about and that's all socially constructed the way that we approach what is a dominant culture and this side of glory when we see all the spiritual leaders in local and large churches and denominational authority are all white men Mm. and we think this is a picture of heaven then i think you mean even in heaven 
white men are going to be in charge, mm. right? I mean, it's a fascinating misunderstanding of what, when we say this is a foretaste of heaven, and then we look out at the lack of diversity that's in a given room. Mm. And we say, this can't be a foretaste of heaven. And if it is a foretaste of heaven, then will English be the dominant language, right? <laughs> Won't it be Korean or Spanish? Maybe Dutch? I don't know. But it's interesting. Who will actually be in heaven? And will we, to the extent that it'll matter, will we recognize different races, right? I mean, that, that, that's a whole other conversation, perhaps. Are you saying that we're not going to sing Hillsong? Uh, you know, uh, in heaven for all eternity. I mean, it's well, almost like what people think it is, right? That particular uh, kind of music with those kind of songs. So, like, it's almost like universal, our perceptions of it anyway. Yeah, these days, of course, Hillsong is on the verge of getting canceled altogether. But that's, oh, a, again, another conversation. But another topic. What's, what's interesting to me, going back to this, all the brouhaha over intersectionality, which is one of the tenets of critical race theory, by the way. Kimberly Crenshaw's original presentation has emerged where um, LGBTQ plus scholars have engaged in this and said, let me take this theoretical framework one step further and to say that if you're minoritized as a black woman, both racialized and sexualized, wouldn't that also be true for homosexual identity? Would that not be true for uh, a transgender identity and that they would be further minoritized? And that's when I think more conservative uh, Christian circles get very uncomfortable. And they say, yeah, see, CRT and intersectionality is all about LGBTQ plus rights, right? And what I just want to share is that the original intent, the way that it was presented, was probably more heteronormative. Um, that is true. The application of this certainly does make sense. Are LGBTQ plus citizens in the United States generally underrepresented, misrepresented, and oppressed by laws and policies in place across the United States and within churches? Yes. As a cisgender heterosexual male, can I recognize that regularly on a day-to-day -day basis? No, because it's not my lived experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we tend to think about experiences and we, I think, tend to universalize our experience toward other people and right and saying so if we have intersectional identity well you can say well obviously this is more important than this because it causes me pain i can understand that i cannot understand this thing so therefore it must not be important and i think it's very easy to kind of uh, project what we think is a biblical way of thinking about it and saying well the bible mentions these things and the Bible doesn't mention other things. Therefore, it must be like this. You know, previously, you and I have talked about this thing, the fact that how important it is to affirm God's image for all people, regardless of even sexuality or orientation or, you know, sexual expression or whatever, right? I mean, whether it be race, ethnicity, you know, how do we kind of affirm that idea, that theological idea in a broad way to all of our neighbors, not only the ones that we agree with. Yeah, yeah, that I feel like this ties back into that old idea of the homogenous unit principle, right? That sort of built church planting models a decade or so ago, that we're so much more comfortable with people who look like, act like, think like, and vote like us. And if we're like-minded and anyone who's counter to that in any way, shape or form makes us uncomfortable. And I think we should recognize that our sheer discomfort 
with people who are different from us. And I think that's part of the challenge for us. Can we pause and recognize that the other, whomever that might be for you, is made in God's image, right? From the beginning was intended to bring glory to God, whether they are believers or not. I think that's an important distinction from a, crea from a creation perspective. That's an important doctrinal truth that we need to embrace. Along those lines, I think there are churches that often can, and you know, explicitly or implicitly, create a context in which it can be toxic for certain people, right? Just, I mean, for example, LGBTQ, right? You know, you, you hear about these stories who basically feel like I shouldn't live, I should kill myself because that's actually the easy solution, right? Um, and this obviously deeply concerns us because we talk about the fact that. I mean, no matter what's going on, right? No matter where people are, how do we affirm the full uh, humanity, right? And image of God just across the board, right? Yeah. We have to get back from a Christian's perspective, you know, what is truly a biblical response to loving our neighbor. Um, and it doesn't mean that we agree with everything in terms of choices, lifestyle orientation, but can we all agree that... Empathy and care should be what drives us uh, to be the very hands and feet of Christ. And, and you said it uh, so eloquently earlier. If we talk about if you're a church where you push a certain message to say, if you identify this way, you're an abomination. I don't know anybody who comes to saving faith with that kind of gospel message right? My friend Scott Sauls was saying that who comes to faith when somebody bashes them and ridicules mm. and, and shames them? It's usually love, right? It's the love of Christ and the warmth of God's followers that helps them to fall in love and follow Christ. And I think that's an important distinction. If you're right, if it drives us to kill ourselves or to harm ourselves, right? We may not have a proper understanding of God's love. Even as we disagree theologically on where we might land, I think we can agree on that. But I wanted to take another direction for a second and go back to intersectionality and just make an important distinction. This is my educator hat for a second. I think it's often misunderstood that people will hear intersectionality simply as multiple identities. But intersectionality must be rooted in oppressive structures. So if you're Southern and you're low income and you're male, you say, yeah, these are my intersection identities, right? Uh, no, that's not what it is. Because if you're white and male and cisgender, you have a lot of dominant identities, right? Going back to the elephant and the giraffe analogy, the house was built for you. And in a similar way for myself, being male, cisgender, heterosexual, in many ways, the houses in my denomination were built for me. And it makes it somewhat easy. Of course, being Asian American in a dominantly white denomination has its challenges, but being male doesn't have any challenges. You know, being heterosexual and being cisgender does not have, does not present a problem for me in running around in my denominational spaces, at my university, in my community. And so I think it's important to recognize that these intersecting identities are rooted in oppressive structures.
with those lines, this whole point that you've mentioned about our own privilege, you know, in the previous episodes and seasons of the podcast, the Centering Podcast, we've had women lead and, uh, you know, and be hosts and guests. Um, you know, we have two male Korean American in this particular season. And I think it's so important for us to talk about gender issues and talk about our privilege and talk about and recognize um, what it means to have power, relative power, and not just leave it up to our friends and our sisters to be like, you take, you talk about women issues, you talk about gender issues, because that's, that's the bird that you carry in a sense. I mean, you know, this is a, this is a really important issue, right? Yeah. You know, if we talk about race and you and I do this a lot, uh, when we talk about race and racism and it's our white colleagues who love the diversity that we bring to space. And then they say, Hey, Alex, can you talk about this at a session? And I, I say, wait for it. Let me guess. It's going to be on race and ethnicity um, because <laughs> that's what I bring and I'm glad to do it. But I also yeah. talk about other things, but that's yeah. usually not what I'm wanted for. Um, mm. I bring that diversity and that perspective, my pain, my experiences for the benefit of others who are listening in some sense for them to get some empathetic uh, movement in their hearts and to try to understand. Well, goodness, if that's true for you and me, Daniel, as, as men, but as Asian men, how yeah. much is that also true for our sisters, our Asian sisters, who uh, by virtue of these shootings, these murders in Atlanta that were absolutely racially and sexually motivated, for us to call upon our Asian sisters in the midst of their pain and their own re-traumatization of experiences that they've had um, to say, hey, teach us, right? We mm, wanna learn yeah. from you. As if the only time we can have these conversations is when Asian women are in the room. And I've said this many times to my white sisters and brothers, have these conversations about anti-Asian racism without an Asian person there so that you can talk to yourselves, talk to your people. And so I feel like that's what we can do here, Daniel. Yeah. You know, when I've said something similar, people were like, but, you know, who would teach us? And I was like, there's, I mean, I can recommend some stuff because there's literally endless amount of resources that are out there. You don't necessarily need like a minority person to teach these things, right? If you can point to resources and, and of course other speakers can kind of help along, but it's almost as though people don't want to do work themselves and they want somebody to spoon feed them. I'm like, look, it's going to be take work. It's going to take time. It's fuller. We were talking about uh, this one article, uh, you know, on race structures of racism that I thought that it'd be important for the faculty to read. And some of them said, well, how long is it? I was like, you are a theology professor. How long do you want it to be? Well, you know what? I can't read if it's like more than two pages. I was like, wait a minute. You spend time not only reading, but writing hundreds of pages. And you don't want to read this. Because what? Because, you know, it's not something that's important for you. So you want it to be reduced down to like a couple of pages. Right. I mean, I just found it really offensive. Like, well, you don't want to do any work. Um, but, you know, once again, you get, you get what you pay for. You get what you work for in a sense as far as that goes. You can't really get spoon fed for these things and have the kind of insight that you really need to have. That's good. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's the Minimax principle, um, right? Minimum effort, maximum reward. And it reveals a lot about our hearts to say, just give me the Cliff Notes version. I want the Reader's Digest condensed version 
not all of it, just a little bit, because I actually don't value this that much. I just need to hear a little bit. Can you tweet it out? Can it be done in a blog? <laughs> um, and so I think that's part of the challenge here that I hope that when we address issues that we're not doing it absent of information that we've gleaned from others who are teaching us. I think of Nancy Wong Yuen, I think of um, Jane Hong, right? They're, mm. they're my teachers on many different issues, right? Yeah. On issues of Asian women, but on other issues as well. Jane Hong is a great right, historian. Right. I love that you had her um, not too long ago in a previous season, and I learned a lot. But you know, one of the issues that she brought up, I think it was called the Page Act. Um, I'm not sure yeah. if it was on the podcast or in some of her other lectures, but the US denied access for women from China, but allowed men to work on the railroads to do uh, labor work, but didn't allow women to come to the United States. And I think Professor Hong was talking about this because she was saying this idea of sexualizing women and seeing them as temptresses, uh, temptresses uh, for Asian women, the threat of them working as prostitutes is why they did not allow women to come into the United States from Asia. And that was a law that was enacted for that very reason. So this is not a new phenomenon for the way that uh, most of Americans not just white men, black and brown men as well, uh, the way that they sexualize and minoritize Asian women. Right. I mean, the Page Act of 1875, right? And then later on, a couple of years later, we have the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act that banned pretty much everybody, right? Men and women. And, and 1882, we know that these racial stereotypes go you know, way, way deep, right? We're talking about Shang-Chi and we talked about the stereotype of Fu Manchu. I mean, long history of this brilliant, powerful, uh, insidious, inscrutable Asian men trying to take over the world. And then you have all these stereotypes of the, the cunning dragon lady or the, or the China doll or the geisha doll mm. that, that, that needs salvation, right? That they need saving from the white men who are basically there to serve them. I think there's that aspect of it. And a lot of Asian American women talk about the fact that, hey, we know we get sexualized in a particular way from you know, white dominant society, but it's not as though our own communities are safe either Ouch. right i mean that's let's you know because that's the intersectional aspect of it this is it's, gonna you get it from both ways absolutely right and within asian american spaces patriarchy and misogyny run deep um not just in asian american cultures this is true probably in the homelands for many um how patriarchy and misogyny run deep in places like china and taiwan and korea um, absolutely true. So you're right. I think our sisters get it both from non-Asian men and get it from Asian men. And their levels of pain, I, I can't even fathom. And I constantly make the mistake. And I had for the last couple of years, especially as we talk about the murders in Atlanta, that if women, Asian women are naturally seen as sex workers, Right. Mm -hmm. And it plays so well with the media. And that's how yeah. the mediated control of how Asian women are to be viewed um, is so problematic. And it's a daily lived reality for many of our Asian sisters that I confess that I have just in my privilege, I have not thought about them because I don't need to think about it.
And the danger, right. of course, is to say, oh, you have a mother, you have a wife, and you have a daughter, Alex, you should understand. It's a shame to say that it only is an issue if it's deeply personal, <laughs> as mm. if yeah, I didn't have right. a mother, a wife, or a daughter, that it shouldn't be an issue for me. Right, right. Like, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a father of three daughters. Therefore, I'm like, well, what if you don't have any daughters? Yeah. You're not going to care about these things. It doesn't impact you. I, I feel like I'll confess that one of the ways that I've really learned about how white normativity feels like, and also how I, you know, how white folks kind of kind of feel is when I've had uh, Asian American women critique me and saying, wait a minute, look, you, you're not seeing what's happening here, right? And I was like, and of course I'm frustrated, well, you don't really know who I am. And I'm like, wait a minute, but in so many explicit and implicit ways. And I confess, I always say, you know what, who knows what stupid things I'm doing, but that makes things, you know, male normative, right? I mean, in all the different things that, that I mean, I think I, I, I try, I mean, it's definitely a priority for me, but it's not, it's literally baked into me. I'm trying to beat it out of my body, right? One of the things I always say is that doing dishes is a way I beat patriarchy out of my body. When I fold my kids' underwear, all the little girls' underwear, my, my wife's underwear, when I do laundry, I'm like, that's how you beat patriarchy out of my body because these things are connected to how we think about gender and we naturally kind of react and saying, what well, these are not what men should do, right? And I think that idea of kind of beating this out of our system is, is so right on. Yeah, but it's interesting too, uh, in a very similar way, privilege is a virus in this sense, right? It mutates. And so in a strange world, when I pick my children up or go to events for them or leave work early because of things that I'm doing for my children, I get a pat on the back to say, what a good father right? Mm. Oh, you did the yeah. dishes. What, you know, wow, that's wonderful. I love the way that you're able to challenge the long held, you know, and we get benefits from doing this yeah. work and we're yeah. still receiving credit and we don't that's do crazy. it that often. Right? I mean, yeah, that's, that's the crazy. problem. It's the every once yeah. in a while thing. And so even as we do the good work, it reveals another layer of privilege for us. And I think in the church, that's something that we need to recognize. In myself, it's something I need to recognize. And this is where minoritized voices in the case of Asian women, many of my sisters in the church would feel this. They feel voiceless and powerless. And they have no choice but to look to someone who has his maleness and his authority that comes with maleness in the church to be able to speak, not on their mm -hmm. behalf, but that I would speak to other men. In, in this sense, because we're both Korean American and East Asian, I've actually seen intersectionality function in different ways in terms of how in certain Asian American uh, spaces, people talk about, well, non-East Asians or non-Korean Americans who talk about East Asian dominance or Korean American kind of supremacy. Because often, I think uh, as minorities, we don't realize that we're representing different ethnicities and we're not doing a very good job, right? And we're kind of assuming the fact that our issues are same as other people's issues. People talk about in terms of Asian American pan-ethnicity, the fact that even when we're all lumped together, East Asian men, who are privileged, where academics end up representing, I mean, there's like two of us, representing, right, all of Asian America. Yeah. And if we don't think about other kinds of Asian Americans, right, Southeast Asian, South Asian adoptees, you know, uh, then they are absolutely invisible. Yeah, no, that's right. 
Um, I have joked with many of my friends, uh, non-Korean and Korean alike. I, I say, you know, Koreans to the Asian American, broader Asian American community, we're like white people in that space. Mm. Right? We hold yeah. for whatever reason, uh, lots of privilege, lots of dominant spaces. We take up spaces. And the challenge is, on the one hand, when we're invited into certain spaces and we hold certain positions, we represent them. But at the same time, we don't do a good enough job of representing all of them, right? We might be the mm. only one because their um, white dominance says we have an Asian and it happens to be an East Asian, happens to be Korean American. That's it. You get one. Right? You get one yeah, and it yeah. happens to be Korean American. Can we do a good job of a fair representation? And that's a good reminder for me as well as we talk about different types, different traditions within Asian American um, right. spaces. Yeah, I mean, I think about two things historically in that sense. Like, uh, I mean, Korean Americans are definitely privileged and or almost overrepresented. I always remind people of the fact that we are less than 10% of Asian American population, that they're, they're actually more Vietnamese Americans than Asian American, Korean Americans. And people are always shocked by that. They're like, wait a minute, isn't Korean Americans like 50% of the Asian American population? And I'm like, oh, no, that's not what the demographics say. We're actually less than, less than 10%. I, I think because you know, Korean Americans are not, not quiet people. And we, uh, you know, through uh, Japanese occupation, we've actually uh, have uh, kind of developed the voice of kind of taking up room and wanting to be loud. But I think what ends up happening is when we have that same mentality and kind of affirming our ethno ethnic identity, when we take that and when we end up representing, right, uh, doing these leadership roles of being Asian American, I mean, then you basically end up projecting Koreanness and erasing everybody else, yeah. right? I mean, one Korean American was, a scholar was talking about the fact that, oh, didn't everybody come like us, like seeking the American dream? I'm like, no, there are people who came way before. There are people who came as uh, indentured servants. There are people who came as refugees. That's right. Yeah. Not everybody came like us. Yeah. It is interesting that uh, stereotypes are complicated. Um, Chimamanda Adichie said that the problem with stereotypes is not that they're untrue, it's that they're uh, incomplete, right? Mm -hmm. um, the idea that part of it can be true. You think about, yeah. again, this is the immigration experience of the first wave of Koreans who came from uh, war-torn South Korea. It was the intellectuals, right? People who came as PhD students or had a work visa. My father was one of those uh, privileged handful that were allowed to come before uh, immigration because he was a, a foreign correspondent for a newspaper, right? And all of his yeah. friends in Washington, D.C. were PhD students at Washington University, American University, Georgetown, George Mason, et cetera. So, you know, it was the intellectuals who came. And so the assumption naturally became within that that white dominant model minority myth to say, oh, all Koreans must be successful. Well, the United States policy, we're only going to allow the successful ones in our eyes, uh, the yeah. academicians to come, the intelligentsia to come. So that's what was created. I'm going to pause for a moment and say, look at how that's not true and how anti-Blackness is experienced uh, for Black folks in Africa, right? You think of Nigeria, for example, um, and the highly successful folks in many industries in the United States. And Nigerian Americans 
stereotypically might perform very similarly to Korean Americans. Yeah, almost like model minority, right? But no one ever calls black Africans model minorities <laughs> by virtue yeah. of, you know, our anti-blackness. This is true for white folks and this is true for Asians as well. We don't look at Nigerian Americans and their success and say all Africans and Africans Americans are successful because of the Nigerians. We don't do, no one does that. So that just yeah. reveals again, our limited understanding, the myth, the mythology that's created around certain ethnicities and races. And that ties all the way back into how we've all bought into a secularized understanding of socially constructed understandings of race that are not biblical, right? We cannot attach certain achievements or failures based on racial makeup. Yeah, in that sense uh, of how we, we have these uh, racial stereotypes that function and distort uh, and also kind of uh, erase parts of you know, uh, people's identity and experience as well. Going back to this idea of us affirming our resurrection, the fact that we actually, our salvation is not just spiritual, but physical as well. I mean, in terms of how we think about it, and the fact that our bodies matter, bodies with our histories and everything else, you know, uh, I think as we wrap up this episode, we want to kind of just uh, think about the Imago Dei and, and how that affirmation is really uh, an affirmation of our, our, our concrete, you know, bodies with our histories and not just some esoteric essence of our humanity that actually is devoid of our particular uh, features. Yeah, I, I'm gonna get ultra practical here and perhaps even prescriptive in my response and uh, listeners, uh, the danger of then running to some Asian American sister and saying, oh, I just heard this podcast. I had no idea that you're going through this. You know, if we can resist the temptation to then go and in one sense, I feel like we're infantilizing um, our Asian American mm -hmm. sisters. Oh, you poor thing. I had no idea. How can I care for you on the one end without deeper study and self-reflection or on the mm -hmm. other end being toxically positive by saying the resurrection is coming. It's going to be great. The other side of uh, uh, glory, it's going to be wonderful for you. Just be patient right? God has yeah. a wonderful plan for you for later, but not today, <laughs> not here, right? Um, no, somewhere in, in between is the right answer. And I hope as you're listening to this, people will hear it and say, I have never thought about the unique experiences of Asian American women, for example, um, and the variety of things that they go through. And I need to deconstruct and dismantle my own thinking process and the own, my own architecture of how I have always viewed Asian women. And it's this idea of three or four anecdotal examples. Uh, the three or four women that I know are all pharmacists and physicians. I assume they're all like that because the ones I know are like that. That's as dangerous as seeing on the news another black man you know, who's wanted for some sort of crime and say, that's all I know is when I think of black men, I think of crime. Both are extremely problematic. One is deadly, um, but both are extremely problematic. As we kind of wrap up this episode, I think we want to sort of leave you with this idea of the fact that 
people are complicating. They have different aspects of who we are, right? And those things are, you know, in their experience, important to them. So the question is, how do you recognize, see, affirm, listen to who these people are and their experience? How do we love these people in their particular experiences and not images of who they are? And remember the fact that God has made all of us uh, in God's image. And that image, it still resides no matter what you think of their morals or beliefs or whatever it may be, right? And, even, and those things are complicating. But can we do that as Christians and can we do that as churches? Amen. Affirm the humanity and the core image of, of God in every single one around us. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. Uh, we will continue our conversation next week. This has been Centering, the Asian American Christian Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Please tune in each week as we continue to discuss race and grace. And remember, God loves and embraces all of who you are.